It is this notion of transformational learning experience. When you come to college, you come as one person and it could be undergrad or grad and you should leave someone fundamentally different because of the knowledge you acquired, the people you met and the experiences that you had. Today, we're talking about the future of higher education. That's Lynn Perry Wooten, the president of Simmons University in Boston. For the last almost 125 years at Simmons, we've been bridging liberal arts and professional education for undergrads and grads online and on the ground in fields such as education, business, library science, nursing, physical therapy, computer science. We are undergrad women's college, but co-ed for our graduate programs such as doctor in physical therapy and social work. Now, you also asked and tell me about me. I am a lifelong learner. Michael, I love college. I came here to college in 1984. I have worked at a lot of colleges. I have gone to a lot of colleges and I never left. Um, Academic by training with a PhD in corporate strategy. You have a very broad background. So let's dive into higher ed. Higher ed is under a great deal of pressure these days, economic pressure. We hear about uh, debates on student loans. So what's going on with higher ed right now? I've spent, you know, the last 35 years in higher education, 35 plus years. And the model has changed. When I came to college in 1984, my parents thought it was a lot to pay $6,000 for college tuition. And that was fully loaded. The average tuition now is probably somewhere fifty to $60,000. If we think about the industry and where has the model changed, one is that higher education, so the demand is high. People realize that education is a pathway to lifelong success. Expenses have gone up at universities. The amount of money you have to pay faculty and staff, the money that we put in for facilities. Um, you know, when I went to college, cafeterias were pretty basic. I don't know about you, but now we have sushi and we have gluten-free and we have gourmet bars and stir fry and those type of things. Um, we have gyms on college campuses. The other things we have, we're investing a lot in mental health, lots of student programming. So the model has gone up, the expenses have gone up, and people are spending a lot on college education because it's value. And so we're always thinking about university presidents such as myself. How do we make it affordable? How do we make it access and still provide those transformational experiences for our students? The business model of higher ed is really shifting from the standpoint, it sounds like, of the expectations that students have. As you said, sushi in the cafeteria. Definitely when I went to college, that was not happening. But at the same time, you have there you have uh, companies, private companies that are doing online education at, at very little cost. So it seems like the the whole field is kind of a, a difficult minefield at the moment. It's definitely a different, difficult minefield. The corporate strategist in me says there are lots of different strategic groups. There's the for-profit colleges. There are the non-profit colleges. There's this public system. There are the private system. Um, there's undergrad colleges. There are ones that are research intensive. So the big one is, is that, you know, colleges have to know, presidents such as me, is what's your business model? What's your point of differentiation? 
And then what's your value proposition for students and their family? And I'll just use Simmons as a case example. We're considered a small university. We have this two by two where on the ground, our distinction for undergrads is really this unique liberal arts intensive professional education program. Many of our graduate programs, though, for example, are online. And so, for example, we have a robust graduate program online in nursing and social work, and we've been able to spread our educational products across the company country for these deserts where they need nurses and social work. So the business model has definitely changed. And we talked about technology. Now technology is just a level playing field. And that's part of the what we pay for. You know, students expect that their textbooks will be online. They expect that some classrooms will be online. Um, the dorms have to have all Wi-Fi connections. Everyone has kind of a laptop and an iPad. And so this model and this distinction of higher education has really changed over the years. And then you throw in a pandemic. And even how we use technology in the pandemic beyond the classroom, being able to track students. Uh, we, I was just in a meeting where we were talking about testing students, all of these disruptions that you're seeing now. What does that imply for you as the president of the university, as you're seeking to construct a viable business that can function economically and at the same time provide the uh, educational objectives and do it in a way that is compelling and affordable and and competitive. Someone says one of the hardest CEO jobs in America is being a university president. And when I think about the business model of small universities such as Simmons who are tuition dependent, The first thing we have to do is we have to know our student body and make sure that we meet our enrollment goals. But beyond that, many of us are in advancements very big. So the fundraising philanthropy is a big part of what we do and how we manage fundraising and get people to give to us because we are a nonprofit organization. And the third bucket is really many universities are thinking about alternative sources of revenue. You're starting to see more summer programming for high schoolers. You're starting to see more exec ed. I'll give you the example of Simmons, and it relates to our new book. Um, Simmons has had for years a world-renowned institute that looks at inclusive leadership and looks at women's leadership. So that is what we call our fifth business line of income, where we bring in women from all over the world for executive education, women program, our conference where we just had Amanda Gorman and Simone Biles and Brene Brown. And so most universities have these multiple streams of revenue so that they can really achieve their mission of educating the world. You mentioned technology. Is that the is that that seems like it's one of the primary areas that is driving this uh as a, as a forcing function, driving the change in education right now? Technology, I would like to say, is the resource. It's the skill set behind it. But I am now educating a generation of digital natives. And so when they come into the classroom and they come into campus, they expect me to be able to use technology and deliver education and the student experience in multiple modes. So what does that look like? That looks like some content is online. Some of it is asynchronous, and so I offer it at different times. Some of it is synchronous, where everybody comes together at different times. And so I wouldn't say technology is a differentiator, it's an enabler. So going back to the, you know, the Simmons experience, I'll give an example there. We talk about our tagline being 
Um, when Simmons leads, the world works better. And we educate students to be what I call everyday leaders and to go into professions that improve human condition. And so we use technology as a transformative force. We have um, students who are completing their degree on our complete degree program who can't ever make it physically to Simmons campus. But technology enables them to sit in the classroom, just like you and I are doing an interview, and have that Simmons experience. Um, likewise, we know that online content now can be more cost efficient. And so we can have classes where all the textbooks and the class resources are online. When I was in grad school, I even spent thousands of dollars in textbooks. Um, technology allows me also that I can bring in a CEO from any world or a healthcare leader and zoom them right into the classroom from someone from Africa or Asia. I couldn't do that before. So I see technology as enhancer experience. You know, we talk about, um, I do a lot of coaching for people who are looking for colleges, grad and undergrad. And one of the things I always say is, what does your child or what does the student want us to experience? And then when you think about the experience, how is the university going to deliver on that? And part of the delivery is the use of technology. It seems like part, an important part of what you're trying to do is to create a diverse learning environment from the point of view of being able to bring in multiple voices. Yes. That is something that we definitely do. It, you know, it's part of my calling who I am as an African-American woman, but it also starts with the, the founding of Simmons and really this economic empowerment. And you go to this kind of the pandemic era now and you look at a place like Simmons, it's very diverse and technology and other programs let us do this. So how do we bring in first gen college students so they can thrive? Students from under-resourced and underrepresented backgrounds, how do we level the playing field for them? And at Simmons, we do that a lot of ways. And this is another reason why I think college expenses have gone up so much is because we're so intentional about the academic advisors that help guide students from underrepresented and under-resourced backgrounds or students who just need it, career coaches to help me say, how do I use my liberal arts degree or my nursing degree or my computer science degree? are so important. The support of what students need outside the classroom. I don't know about you, Michael, but most of my learning at college happened outside the classroom. It was the clubs, it was the dorm, it was the people that I met from different backgrounds. And creating all of those experiences now really do run up some of the taps. I mean, we have a whole big student life division, but that's their charge to make the transformational experience outside the classroom. I'm paying my faculty and the supporting staff for the transformation inside the classroom. And then we have to have great buildings. Is a big part of your, can we say, uh, competitive differentiation, differentiation relative to companies like Coursera, for example, the, the nature of the, the in-person or the, the richness of the experience that you're trying to create, the environment? It's the richness of the experience. And we do learning in-person and online. And our portfolio, interestingly, is pretty balanced, especially our graduate portfolio. It's about half online and half on the ground. But, you know, when you go to Starbucks, the differentiation is all the forms of coffee you can have and the customer service. Whenever you're looking at the university, and I, like I say, I, I coach a lot of parents and families, you should say, what is the student experience, the transformational process? And at Simmons, you know, we have a great faculty, whether it be online in the classroom, lots of small classrooms, 
who have intense way. We have this Simmons way of doing curriculum, really with critical thinking, bringing the liberal arts into everything, having students sense make of their role and how they want to lead in their profession in that particular domain, challenging the status quo. Um, Simmons is also known for social justice. So the transformation really does come in the community that you have inside and outside the classroom. And each university or college has a different way of doing it. And Simmons has that distinction. Now, please take a moment to subscribe to our newsletter. Hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you notifications of upcoming shows. There's always a live tweet chat taking place. And you can ask questions very directly of the guests. You can ask whatever you want. And also be sure to subscribe on YouTube. So the community aspect then is another very important piece for you. Definitely so. And and we just started a complete degree program for women online, for women who have been out of college for a while and want to finish their degree. And one of the um, women in that program did a video about the online community. And they were all over the United States and talked about how they came together once a week and what they learned from each other and just being in the community. And so when you think about the college experience, you want a college where the individual can thrive, but you also want to look at the community and the collectively and how that community learning happens. Lynn, let's talk about your book. Yes, Arrive and Thrive. So Arrive and Thrive is written with my co-authors, Susan Brady and Janet Fowdy. And I know Janet has been on your show. And um, it's a really unusual arranged, unarranged co-authorship. I was joining Simmons and I came with um, decades of doing leadership work. Susan has been a consulting and done leadership work in women's. And as you know, Janet um, is leading Deloitte. And so we came together and said, you know, these are throughout our lives, we've gone through cycles of arriving and thriving. It's just not at towards the end of your career. You're constantly on this journey of arriving and thriving. And based upon research and interview, we said, what would be seven practices that we wanted any woman to know if they're going to arrive and thrive in the workplace? And not only the workplace, but their personal life, their professional life, and their civic life. And so these seven practices are based on interviews. They're based on data that we collected. They're grounded in theory. And each of the practices have a tool so that women can think about how they can arrive and thrive. We felt this topic was especially relevant as we looked at the she session during the pandemic, and hopefully that the book is a gift to contribute to what I call the she recovery. We have some questions from Twitter. Why don't we jump into those? And as always, the questions are great. And the first one is from Andrew Morosky. He is he is a, an executive at Oracle. And he says the following. He says, great discussion on the richness of experience. Do you have advice for undergrads and or parents as they make the transition from undergrad to graduate programs, especially during the pandemic? And I should mention that that Andrew has been a guest on CXO Talk in the past as well. Michael, I have two kids. I have a 20-year-old at Brown and I have a 27-year-old who's an attorney. So in addition to spending all the majority of my life in college, I've been where that guest has about how do you help someone make that transition? And I was telling Michael, you that, you know, we're parents much longer than our parents were. And part of the new parenting role is, okay, we have to get a student from high school to college and then from undergrad to grad. 
especially during the pandemic. So the one thing you want to do, first of all, is you want to, and I know that hopefully your child has selected the right grad school. You want to ask, what do you want out of your graduate experience? At the end of the experience, what do you want? What type of career do you expect to have? Where do you want to live? Is that particular school producing the graduates who you want to be like? As a parent, also similar to undergrad, you want to make sure that your student is getting the most out of their graduate experience. Graduate experience, I think there are several buckets. Get to know your professors and your faculty. That's so important. Engage with them. Develop a community and network of people. My uh, One of my co-authors that I've written with for 30 years, we became best friends in grad school. So grad school were a lot of those foundations. And so you want to make sure you're using your peers and your classrooms and your networks. And then you want to be intentional about, about designing your life while you're in graduate school. Think about, okay, this is the start part. And this is what I want to look like at the end of my life. This is where I want to live. This is where I want to work. And this is how I'm going to commit to my profession and lifelong learning. So parents, just because your child's in graduate school, it doesn't stop. Still do that parenting behind the scenes, acting as a coach, guiding them to make sure they have that transformational experience. And what advice do you have for graduate students on what's what's the best way for them to take control of that experience and not just sort of shuffle through based on the program that exists that's been outlined for them. You know, don't shuffle through. Get to know the people in the community. I think about, you know, my MBA is from Duke and my PhD is from Michigan. And so, you know, graduate school is more than just studying. Faculty love to be engaged with their graduate students. So first thing, get to know two or three professors in depth, especially those who are aligned with your career interests. Pick clubs and communities and professional associations. So if you're going to be a nurse or a business school, you know, pick those clubs. Reach out to alum in your graduate program. Ping them on LinkedIn. Start to build that network. And then also think about how you can give back. So when you graduate from graduate school, what you want your legacy to be and how you're going to give back to the next generation of graduate students. We have another question from Twitter, and this is from Arsalan Khan, who's a regular listener, and he always asks great questions. And going back to what we were discussing earlier, Arsalan says, it seems like students are your customers, hence the focus on customer experience. So how do you think about that? Your students are your customers. Everyone who touches Simmons or any university that I've been affiliated with, my goal is for them to have a transformational experience. And what do universities do well? We help transformational experience through various forms of learning. And that is what I do every day. That's why I think I have one of the best jobs in the world. I get to work with young adults who are making sense of their world and as he called them, the customer, and help them see what kind of experience they're going to have, and then launch them into society to improve the world. I mean, what better job is that? This notion of transformational experience really is the undercurrent or the foundation from which your your strategy, your business plans, and so forth arise. I should ask that as a question. I did not mean to put words in your mouth. That is really true that, you know, it is this notion of this transformational learning experience. 
when you come to college, you come as one person and it could be undergrad or grad and you should leave someone fundamentally different because of the knowledge you acquired, the people you met and the experiences that you had. And going back to your first question, and so I always encourage people to think about the blueprint of the experiences they want to have in college. Do you want to study abroad? Who are the people you want to meet? What courses do you want to take? What clubs do you want to join? What do you say you want to learn? And beyond your major, you know, learn something different now. You know, my youngest major is dance and educational educational studies, but she's taking French because she wants to fine tune her French tools and do something great. Like we think she's also majoring in protesting. So she's at Brown. So maybe that's what they do there. But do something else, too, different that you wouldn't have a chance to do. Again, the theme of creating a a rich experience. The theme of creating a rich experience, and it's being in the moment, but it's also being futuristic. What do you want to look back on and what do you want to accomplish so that this experience is a launching pad for the next cycle of arriving and thriving? Andrew Morosky comes back and he says, thank you. And He wants you to know that his daughter is about to start a dual master's for library sciences and history at Simmons in the fall. That is one of our renowned programs and tell the daughter to come meet me. I was just talking to a student in that program yesterday who's graduating and was working on the history part of her thesis. And if she wants to work in the president's office, I have plenty of research for her. Arsalan Khan comes back and he says, I love, you can see, I love taking the questions from social media. We get such great questions. He comes back and he says, in the future, we can't just be focused on one industry or discipline. We have to become multidisciplinary, combining, for example, IT and empathy training. Now, for those of us who are technologists, the idea of combining IT and empathy training it's a great idea. It's good in theory. We'll see how, how well it works. It's a great, great thing to do. But he's saying, how do we encourage students to do that? I went to undergrad and I was an accounting major. I'm a CPA by training. I was very focused on practicing the CPA exam. And I had to take all those classes for required for accounting. Now, I really encourage students, especially undergrads, to have this explore orientation, encouraging them to make their college curriculum engage both sides of the brain. So the creative side and kind of the technology, the scientific, the math side, but also developing those skills that your guest is asking, empathy, emotional intelligence. And some of that happens by the experience. You know, where did I learn emotional intelligence? Living in the dorm. You know, if you can't learn it there, that's the best place. And so having a bucket of experiences, what you want your college to do is one, education is the foundational pyramid when we think about this model. And then the experiences that you have, this next bucket I say is everybody should develop an expertise in some area. But like your guest said, that expertise has to change over time. So I went from an accounting major to information systems to corporate strategy. So, you know, I changed. So being a lifelong learner, the other thing that colleges is good about, we teach emotional intelligence and we help people develop their execution capability, getting things done. You know, as I have interviewed so many business leaders, this idea of empathy, developing empathy for your customers, developing empathy for your coworkers, for other stakeholders, as you were describing earlier, has really come up as such an important theme. And it makes sense because at the end of the day, 
the world moves forward, not because of technology, but because of the, the people. Right. It's the people. And part of that is learning from people from different backgrounds, developing high quality connections with people and understanding that no one is a single story. And that that's what you get to do a deep dive of in college. Right. I think about even in a Ph.D. program, I had the opportunity to teach a student who had just come back from their pilgrimage on Mecca and got to learn all about what making that pilgrimage is and what it means to be a student of Muslim faith and that journey. And so those rich stories teach you empathy. Right now, there's a tweet chat taking place. If you're listening, you should ask questions. When else will you have the chance to, to ask the president of our university pretty much whatever you want? So, so now's the time. If you're watching on LinkedIn, then just insert your questions into the chat and on Twitter, hashtag CXOTalk. Lynn, your book is called Arrive and Thrive. And what advice do you have for folks in business about arriving and thriving, and especially to, to women? The book has seven practices. And I'm not going to go through all seven, but I will highlight a couple. You know, the first is women have to identify what is their best self and how they bring their best self to any practice and organizational life. And part of knowing your best self is knowing your strengths. What are your superpowers? What are your strengths? Understanding how your identity plays a role. You were just talking about empathy. I learned a lot of empathy from being a parent. And part of my identity is being a parent. Understanding your origin story and using that as something to empower you. And then knowing your values. And so start with your best self. This is why college, this undergrad and discovery phase is so much because it helps people really identify what their best self is. Then we tell women, you want to pick workplaces where you can be authentic. You know, where the, it's in the research area where I say, we almost call it person job fit. So those workplaces where you can be authentic. And then um, we go into the book and talk about the importance of courage and vision. Often women are not seen as visionary leaders, the research shows. And so we really provide some tools and resources and a framework that women can show up and ensure that they're seen as visionary leaders, that they're expressing a vision, and that they're thinking strategically. The first part of our conversation, we were doing a lot of strategic talk and getting women to think strategically. How do I do that analysis, understanding the customer and differentiation and the finances and the marketing and the road share? Um, the other big one that we could not have a book for women, especially in what I call this pandemic era, and talk about resiliency and how do you bounce back from tough times and the importance of resiliency. But as I said, the book really is a gift for women to say, you know, I'm going to constantly be arriving and thriving. I might be entering and exiting the workplace. I may be changing jobs. What are those practices I can use to be my best self? An important part of your message has been inclusive leadership, that phrase. What, is, what does inclusive leadership mean? When I first started in my field, diversity was the buzzword. And I, I saw a quote that said, diversity is the fact, but inclusion is the act. And we know that in organizations, we have all types of differences. We have ability differences and racial differences and gender differences and religion differences. 
And that is the diversity when we look at this, when we look at the demographics of organizational life. But inclusion is creating a culture where people feel like they belong. They're no longer a guest, but they're a member of the organization. Their voice is heard. They are valued. And so how do we do that? Because it sounds easier than what it is, right? I often start with the ABCs of it. And I say, first, you have to assess what are the demographics and the differences in your organization? And given those demographics and differences, what are some of those biases that we might have where the system is not working well? Um, So that's the A part. The B is, okay, we have this diverse organization. How do we build bridges so that everyone can be their best self? So at Simmons, we're thinking about diversity on multiple dimensions first generation, students from rural areas, students from urban areas, our online students, our students who are vets. We're trying to build all of those um, bridges so that people can show up and be their best selves. But, you know, diversity and inclusion is not only about um, culture change, it's also about having the organization be a high performer. And so the C is about cultivating capabilities around diversity and inclusion. And thinking about it that way. I guess, as you said, it's easier said than done, especially when we have such a very highly polarized society. So when you think about Simmons, how do you try to ensure that you have at the same time uh, sufficient diversity and yet not so much diversity that it becomes antagonistic and tears the the fabric of the society inside the university apart. It is. And, you know, at the, the peak of it, what I'm always emphasizing is Team Simmons, One Simmons. And that especially the generation that I deal with when you're dealing with young adults and emerging adults, you're going to have some polarization because that's part of their identity journey. But we have to come together. We have to have those crucial conversations, the intergroup dialogue. And then I'm always having to make the decision about, okay, what is in the best interest of Simmons? But part of it is a culture where people are seen, heard, and respected. We welcome diverse views. We welcome debates. And we don't want to be a polarized. We want all the voices to be heard. And then we want to live in a way that's consistent with our values. And our values are around equity and social justice and learning and everyday leadership. You have said that being an African American woman woman uh, is among the among the various forces that shaped you that had the profoundest impact. Can you tell us about that? I grew up in Philadelphia. Grew up in the late '60s, early the '70s, and the '80s, and was born at pretty much the height of the civil rights movement. And in fact. My father often called me Lynn X because it was a nickname after Malcolm X. And really talking to me about my history and the ancestors and the people who came from me, such as Dr. King, Malcolm X, Coretta Scott King, Harriet Tubman, all of those people inspired me as a child. I went to a um, African-American private school. And so we would always talk about Black history and that would inspire me. So part of me, when I think about my strength, when I think about my resiliency, and the people who came before me, it shaped who I am as a leader. Another value that I learned growing up as African-American is this notion of community, that really, if you want to go fast, you can go alone. 
And this is an African proverb. If you want to go far, you go with other people and you need them. You need the village. And so a big part of my leadership value is that leadership is a communal journey. It's not a solo. It's not a solo type of thing. And that's another thing I learned. Um, The other thing I learned is the respect for people from marginalized populations. Being a woman in an underrepresented minority, I'm always lifting as I climb. So I want to elevate everyone. And I want to make sure those people who come from marginalized population are part of my lifting as climbing. So I'm always looking across the room to say, who can I serve as a leader? How do I serve that vet? Or how do I serve that person who's struggling with mental illness? And those are some of the values that um, being Black in America has taught me. When you are making decisions inside Simmons around uh, strategies, priorities, investment decisions, how do you balance the efficiency in terms of economic efficiency against the fact that lifting up other people may be expensive? It's definitely a balanced act. And we're constantly thinking about this. And, you know, the way that we do it a lot is we do have to have a portfolio of faculty, staff, and students from different backgrounds. We do a lot of fundraising. We apply for grants. We try to be inclusive as possible. But we're always constantly balancing that. This is why, you know, we spend tons of money on financial aid because equity and access is important. And so, you know, when my family says, what are you doing? I'm saying, I'm out on the road raising money so that I can have equity and access to have scholarships for students who can't afford a Simmons experience. This is, you know, you look at the world and I'm so grateful for philanthropists such as Mackenzie Scott and Melinda Gates who are giving money to colleges because they understand access is important. So it's a constant balance, essentially. It's a constant balance of thinking about, you know, raising money, thinking about the tuition coming in, and how we can stretch our money and fundraise money to provide access and equities for people who can't afford it, especially a small school like Simmons, who you know is tuition dependent and with a smaller endowment. We have another question uh, again from Arsalan. Arsalan is amazing. He, I love Arsalan's <laughs> he, he questions. He asks the greatest questions. Uh, he says, in the corporate world, sometimes politics takes over meritocracy. How do you teach students to understand? and manage politics? Uh, It's such a great question. I'm thinking, I'm still trying to figure that one out myself. There are multiple ways we do this. This is why the liberal arts become so important and the professional education. So we do it through case studies to teach politics. We do it through novels and films and the humanities. But uh, we also want our students to be engaged as political citizens of the world to understand how they can be empowered to be everyday leaders for systems change. And um, how do you manage and navigate politics? There are a lot of things we do at universities. We teach conflict management. We teach dialogue, um, emotional intelligence, as you said, Michael, and how to read the room. When I used to teach the organizational behavior class, and you may have seen it, I would use the movie 12 Angry Men. Have you seen that movie, Michael? Yes, great movie. And I would teach that to my students to understand the political dynamics in this juror room. And how the main character was able to issue sale, he was able to work the room, he was able to use the data to manage the politics to make sure that social justice and equity prevail. Uh, We have another question, and this time is from Elizabeth Shaw, who says, 
How do the principles that you describe in your book, Arrive and Thrive, apply to faculty and administrators in achieving the goals of the university? The principles that we have really apply to any industry and any person, even though I know it's targeted for women. But on the university side, especially I can speak about faculty since that's what I've been the majority of my life. And I work a lot with assistant and associate professors. We talk about how do you bring your best self to work? And so it's, you know, I was just in a panel yesterday and we said, you have to be at work at a university that fits with who you are and what you want to accomplish. They're teaching universities and research universities. Um, At a university on the administrative side, it's very important that I create a space that people feel inclusive and that they can be authentic. And let's go to resiliency. Um, I often, I've been saying that the three H's had to reinvent themselves because of the pandemic, healthcare, hospitality, and higher education. And part of it is faculty and staff at universities. Before the pandemic, we took our time with organizational change. And then all of a sudden, we had to shut down our universities and go online. And part of what I do as a university leader is working with my faculty and staff to be resilient, to say the world is constantly changing now. And so how can we provide educational experiences and research and services that the world values and the resiliency? So the principles definitely apply to higher ed too. And, you know, having a vision. Lynn, as we finish up, do you have any final thoughts on education and final thoughts on how you lead Simmons? I want all of you to think about the role that higher education has in your life and hopefully how you continue to contribute. And how does that happen? One, be committed to being a lifelong learner. So go back to your alma mater, be a philanthropist to your alma mater or universities who do that. But think about America is known for higher education. And other than the military, there really aren't a lot of institutions who help people transcend from adolescence to adulthood. And so when you think about higher education and the experience, think about that's our unique place in society. That's what the institutions of higher ed do. And that's why I have such a great job. So valuing the role of higher education in society, and I want all your viewers to be lifelong learners and lifelong learners and go back to college and take a class or do exec ed or something. With regard to leading a university and arriving and thriving, I think, you know, my thing is I'm really committed to everyday leaders. And the way I lead Simmons is I try to show up and be my best self and empower others to be their best self so we can advance the mission of higher education. I've been talking a lot about Boston, and I know you live in the Boston area also. And this notion of when you look at inequities, such as the wealth gap and health disparities and education, higher education can play such a role there. And and closing those gaps. And that's one of the things I also want to do, closing those gaps and so that we have a more just society. And finally, any closing thoughts on inclusive leadership, diversity, inclusion, those, those topics? Each of us every day have to do that inner work to ask how we can be an inclusive leader. And therefore, when we're doing the inner work, we're empowered to be our best selves. And then we can also lift and climb and be an ally or a sponsor for someone. And with that, I want to say thank you to Lynn Perry Wooten. She is the president of Simmons University. Thank you for having me. It was an honor to be with you and your audience. 
And everybody, thank you for watching, especially those folks who, as always, ask such great questions. Now, before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you our newsletter and you'll be notified about shows. Check out CXOTalk.com. Tell your friends and we'll see you again next time. Thanks so much, everybody. And I hope you have a great day.